My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. Hi, I'm Brian Rice. Welcome to Two Glasses In. I'm here with winemaker Tyler Thomas of Deerberg Star Lane Wineries. And I consider uh, Tyler to be one of the top winemakers in California, if not in the world, in my opinion. I'm fascinated oh, by your, you. how you got here to Santa Barbara. We're all very fortunate that you're in our neighborhood. You're elevating Bordeaux and Burgundy wines for this region uh, because of your experience and your knowledge. Why don't you tell me about maybe your journey and how you got here and you, maybe we could start out with your passion for wine, how you discovered it. All right, I was gonna say, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> so my passion for wine really got fed when I was in college, but I think I know with hindsight, it started with just my family background. So my dad's mother was French. Um, in fact, I went to France this year and visited my dad's cousin in Paris. He still lives in Paris. And my second cousin's there. So I grew up with, with family gatherings, especially wine was just something on the table with food. We eat our salads after the meal. Cheese is a dessert course. And so to me, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri in the Midwest, that was what was normal even though it's not normal in Missouri. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to college, I really became more interested in craft things in general, but you know, beers, food, cooking. I had a really good friend who happened to also be from St. Louis, who also is now a winemaker, but he's in Arizona. He and I took a couple of wine tasting courses through a local wine shop in Fort Collins. This is in Colorado, Colorado mm -hmm. State. I was studying plant science, botany. It just never stopped from there. You know, what the, the amount of things to learn about wine we drank a lot of cheap Cote de Rhone's because we had no money. <laughs> and I was, remember being so fascinated with the fact that a fruit could produce something that has savory, spicy qualities. Mm -hmm. And how cool that was. And, and I should say savory, spicy qualities in it, like, that were enjoyable. You know, like, right, and, not, it, and it's like, it, it feels good too when you're drinking it. Yeah. But the a botanist, you know, you, you probably looked at plant science and you looked at food, you know, vegetables and things like that, and you could understand the biochemistry of food. But there's this wine thing, right, where you're almost like an alchemist. You're turning something yeah. into something totally different yeah. that's so pleasurable and so delicious. And like you said, the skins give the wine that spicy character, and it's not just grape juice anymore. Yeah, well, exactly. And there's sort of this endless depth of pursuit, you know, questions. Like, I, I enjoyed, so I was sort of oriented in the sciences in my degree, but I had a lot of different like interests. So one of the reasons I chose botany as my major was that there were so few of us in the College of Natural Sciences that we were required to take upper division electives as a part of our core major classes. So I took like really cool history courses, a couple of philosophy courses. I took a course that was called Seasonal Snow Environments. This is a season, this is a senior level course. And it was essentially an avalanche course. <laughs> and so like we were required to go into the mountains four Saturdays to wow. dig snow pits and backcountry ski. And it was actually a harder class than it sounds like, but it was really, really fun. Okay, I went to the wrong college. <laughs> that is too cool. Did so you anyway, take bottles of wine with you? No, no. <laughs> Although we would, on the drive home, the professor would say, okay, we're going to stop for a water break. And there was this sort of local saloon, you know, just on the side of this two-lane highway. Yeah. And we'd all get Out beers. in the middle of nowhere. He'd, he'd drink water and we'd get beers and he'd turn a blind eye. <laughs> uh, you know, it was... It was so that was one reason I was a botany major. And it was like I had, and so wine kind of represented this ability to kind of think and pursue like a scientist just continuing to ask questions. I heard a physicist once say it, and I'm, like, I'm not going to get it right, but it's like the more questions you answer, the larger the perimeter gets of what you don't know. Like you, there's still so many more things to pursue. That's funny. I, my favorite, and I don't want to interrupt you, no, but ahead. my favorite quote that reminds me so much of the wine industry, and it's on the box, uh, the game, the board game of Othello. The quote on the box says, "A minute to learn, a lifetime to master." Yeah, right. And to me, that's wine. Like you will totally. never master winemaking, right. but you will. You can learn it really fast, and right. you can get the fundamentals down. Right. But You'll, you'll never be able to not only taste the world of wine, but you'll never be able to actually perfect it. And there might be that one wine that gets really close to perfect. Yeah. But it's 
never ending. It's never ending. And I think that that's what attracted me to it, one, as a consumer and just appreciate it. But then as I began to think about what do you want to do with all this scientific understanding you've gained, biotech was an option, but it's like to be able to produce a product that, I, hate, I even hate calling it a product, produce something like wine, craft something like wine that you can share with other people and yet ha still has this side that has this endless pursuit mm -hmm. was so appealing, you know, because you can, at the end of the day, you can sit down and have two glasses of wine like we are, and we could go on for hours about what you could talk about with wine. Mm -hmm. And that, that's our long story short, is how I went from that bachelor's and master's degree in botany into, okay, now I'm going to pursue, pursue winemaking. My wife and I blew our savings traveling around the world, and we very serendipitously met, a, met some winemakers at a wine festival that we didn't even know was going on in New Zealand. And this, there were light bulb went off like, oh wait, it's not all these you know small European farmers that are vignerons doing everything. Like you're actually getting paid. To, someone's paying you to make wine for them. Like you've got to be kidding me. You can do that. <laughs> and I was like, and I thought, wow, maybe I should really think about this. Exactly, as, as something to do. And that's that's kind of where. It, Started. What year was that? What, when did you get started? That was 2001. Okay. And so we got back. We had a few hundred dollars in our bank account. And one of our other goals was to try to ski bum for a couple of years. So I applied to UC Davis's Viticulture Analogy Program. It was accepted. And so we were going to move to Davis, but we ski bummed in Colorado for the winter. Oh, 01 fun. to 02 winter and then moved to, moved to Davis. And I had I actually it turned out my uncle who lived in Marin County north of San Francisco, he knew someone that worked for Jordan Winery in Alexander Valley. So I was able to talk with somebody about you know, how do you get into this industry and there's a couple different routes you can take. And so are you saying we're not going to actually consume the wine? No, oh, no. <laughs> so I brought the 2016 Deerberg Vineyard Chardonnay for you to try. Great. And this vineyard is located inland, right? But not. it's closer to the ocean than Star Lane. Much closer, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is about... 12 miles as a crow flies okay. up in Santa Maria Valley. So it's southeast of the town of Santa Maria, but up on this bench above the kind of valley proper. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so definitely coastal influence. It separates itself, I think, from Santa Rita Hills in that both are coastal, both of our vineyards in those areas are close to the ocean, but this is just, and both are sort of driven by fog, but after midsummer, it's not as windy. And so the, the cool air just sort of sits there, hmm. uh, which presents some challenges to the farming. That and the soil types, I think, are kind of what, part of what set it apart. What's your difference. particular philosophy on Chardonnay? Well, it stems from the, you know, I don't know the company, right? So I got to start with what is the family's goals overall. And I think they have a really long-term multi-generational vision. We want to be producers that lean on classically driven styles that have stood the test of time because mm. we want to produce something that stands the test of time. So a real long-term vision. Right, yeah. They, Jim said 250 years when I was talking to him about joining the project wow. six years ago, and I sort of chuckled, and he said, no, I'm serious. <laughs> Nobody thinks like that. Nobody thinks like that. Well, some cultures think like that. It's right. not an American mindset, typically. Good point. We import or export a lot of wine in Japan, and our importer is a 100-year-old-plus company. They connect with that idea a little bit more. Multi-generational. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it does influence the way you approach your vineyards. You know, we, we're certified sustainable, and we, we need to continue to work to understand how can we sustain the land we're on because we're supposed to be handing it to the great-grandkids. And then I think with the wines, there are wines that have stood the test of time that, say, with Chardonnay are driven by freshness. You know, I think acidity, Chardonnay without a healthy amount of acidity is, I was going to say not Chardonnay, but that sounds like really obnoxious. <laughs> Chug wine? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I think that not overdoing the Chardonnay in terms of flavor profile and texture, just because we can in California, I think that's what I'm talking about. When I say classicism, it's not the late 80s, 90s rise in richness and butter, but maybe even an era before that where... The inspiration was definitely more European. But at the same time, we're not going to apologize about the fact that it's this is California. There's a lot of sunshine. You can get things ripe mm -hmm. and um, or riper. 
And that's what's awesome about Santa Barbara County is is the emphasis you can have on really all the wines that we produce here of freshness. This is really beautiful. I'm detecting butterscotch and lemon. What, what, mm. How would you describe this Chardonnay? And this is 2016 estate-grown Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we do all of our farmings in-house. So it's all estate. How would I describe it? Uh, I'm so bad at deconstructing wine into specific flavors. Oh, that's okay. I, I mean, I, I think that it, it's one reason I picked this vintage is that when I joined, I thought, okay, the family's pretty happy with their Chardonnay. It's got a decent amount of freshness. It's maybe a little rich, so we could adjust a few things, but there won't be as much work that I have to do on this as maybe some of the other wines that they were producing. And that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> and you make one little adjustment and then something else would stick out. And I feel like with the 2016 vintage, we were finally kind of hitting our stride on where we like this wine to be. So I think citrus, you mentioned citrus, there's that kind of fresh aromatic quality to the Chardonnay. There's something that I don't know how to describe other than saying it's it smells like good, fresh California Chardonnay. <laughs> yeah. And then in the mouthfeel, you, you feel that. There's definitely a little more texture and mm -hmm. richness that you'd expect from our area, but there's that backbone of, of acid. acidity and acid. Yeah. And oh, it's really zesty and yeah. it's, it's mouth-watering. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. I, and so I think that I brought it because I wanted to share something with you that we felt like is this is where we want to live. Like mm -hmm. this is where we think represents our vineyard really, really well. Santa Maria Valley and as a result, Santa Barbara County really, really well. Mm -hmm. Not that our previous vintages didn't do that, but like 2014 is a great example. We, we had started picking earlier in 13. We kind of went all in on that in 14, but I, I still wasn't doing the secondary fermentation, which was something they had mm. traditionally not done to try to preserve acidity. So then the wine's finished. I'm like, no, no, I think the acid is good. Like, let's just let it ride where we are. Don't do any ML. And we get about six months into aging and there's just like this bite on the finish, you know, and I was like, wow, like this is, what is that? And I started to wonder, is that the malic acid? You know, because malic acid tastes different than right. lactic and tartaric. And, and so we realized we, we did need to start doing more secondary fermentation, not because we were trying to push for butter or anything sure. like that. There's just ways balance. to do it without doing that, but just mm -hmm. to get back, you know, mm -hmm. the Burgundians use it as a deacidifying tool. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't we do the same thing? If we feel like that acid's a little too aggressive, then... So there's no real protocol to it. You kind of yeah. go vintage by vintage on, right. this, on this particular decision. Totally. It's, it's Jeff, our associate winemaker, and I, who's Jeff, born and raised in the Valley, has been working with us since the year before I got there. And it's literally barrel by barrel hmm. on the Chardonnay lots, kind of getting a feel for the acidity after primary fermentation. Uh, you kind of have a gap there before any spontaneous secondary fermentation would start. So you really mm -hmm. have time to let some of the CO2 kind of subside and, and taste several days in a row or several weeks in a row and say, okay, no, I think the acid's good. Let's leave it. This sounds like a terrible part of our job, right? We <laughs> know, have to right? go around barrel <laughs> by barrel and taste every Well, sometimes single... it's 10 p.m. <laughs> and I've been up for... But no, you're right, right. It, it's not... Uh, although, you know, like your teeth start to hurt. They really right. do start you to hurt You feel like the enamel's peeling off. <laughs> yeah. like, maybe we should do an ML because there's a lot of acid here because <laughs> it really hurts when I brush my teeth. <laughs> but we'll, we've gotten to the point where we... One thing we'll do is often do the secondary fermentation on the neutral barrels, but not on the new barrels. So oh, okay. we're on this wine, we're probably about 30% new oak. Oh, wow. We want, it in, we want it at a level where you don't really notice it. It doesn't seem like that at all. Right. But as you know, the, you know, those new barrels, mm. especially depending on the cooper and the toast you use, add a little bit of uh, sweetness. And, and kind of body to the wine. And so mm -hmm. if we leave that malic acid in there, like if it's right on the borderline, the, the oak itself will balance that out. But with the neutral barrels, you're not getting that same component. So often it's those neutral barrels where we're deciding whether or not we you know, do those secondary fermentations. Mm -hmm. you know, and then it's just, we'll even do some stirring, but we've only done stirring. So I've been there six vintages. We've only stirred one vintage. And so how about far. topping? We do it like once a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, not as frequently as well, some people think Some people should, like but... to do every three to four weeks, but that's pretty much a month. Yeah, right. <laughs> so my thought on that is that, yes, there's headspace, right? But the real concern is not necessarily headspace, it's oxygen. Mm -hmm. So if when, when I pull the bung off, if there's a vacuum, you right. know, like you hear that. Then it should be good, right? Then by definition, a vacuum has no air. Right. So, 
So I shouldn't, like, how worried do I need to be? Now, I do get worried every now and then you pull the bung off yeah, and there's and no vacuum right. and there's like 500 mils of headspace. You're like, oh, crap. Maybe we should be doing this more frequently. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we do like once a month. Mm-hmm. Well, it's beautiful. Where can people find this Chardonnay and price point? So it's $32 retail. So like if you went to our tasting room, it'd be $32 uh, unless you're one of our members and then you get the little break on that. Mm-hmm. And then we're distributed nationally. We're in about 32 states. So it's New York, Florida, Colorado. Wow, do you Texas. spend a lot of time traveling? Yeah. Is it roughly a third of your year? or No, not that much. It felt like that this year. I can't complain too much about where I get to travel. Because mm-hmm. I've been to Florida for a festival in, in January, which was fun, fun. New York. Which everybody um, loves to go to New York. Yeah, Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to Maui for a food and wine Ooh. festival. And, I've been, and I went to France. So oh, Sounds tough. Just like tasting wine, you know, every barrel during harvest, you know, we're just tasting wine a lot during the day. Oh, I got to do blending trials for three months. So it's three days a week, you know, we're meeting and tasting wine. So when you go out to these beautiful places, you're promoting the Santa Barbara County, Santa Barbara wine country brand. And absolutely. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. You know, in fact, uh, in, in Japan this year, we had the great privilege of presenting three days in a row, but really for five days, but three days we, we had basically did a seminar for members of the Japanese. Japanese Somalia Association. And so we used our wines to sort of tell the Santa Barbara story, but the majority of my presentation was about Santa Barbara. I mean, I was talking about AVAs like Ballard Canyon that we don't even have grapes in. Because what we realized was when we sort of developed a relationship with one of the, the leaders of the organization, is that they only have a couple literally sentences in their book on California wine about Santa Barbara. And so they were asking us to come to them and help them educate their members a little bit more deeply on kind of Santa Barbara. And it was really neat to see their responses of, wow, like in that small of an area, you have that diverse of a climate to where you're growing those types of varieties. Exactly. You know, that it isn't just a marketing ploy that we, you know, I brought mm-hmm. a Cabernet for you. Like it's not in just the same marketing to have Chardonnay and Cab. Yeah. You know, we're not growing them at the same vineyard. It's right. that you drive 40 minutes and the temperature mm-hmm. changes that much. And that was something that seemed to hit home to these Japanese Somalis each day we presented it. I think that the new focus on sub-appellations has helped drive that differentiation of our region. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, surveying and, and we've looked at soils and climates and we've kind of pooled all of our data together as winemakers and we've decided, yeah, this is distinctly different from 40 miles away. And, and, though, and so therefore we should only be planting these varieties in this climate. Yeah. And we finally matured, I think, as a, as a wine region where in the past we were just planting everything in the same, you know, in the same appellation, Cabernet, Chardonnay. And now right. we have the smarts to realize, no, you can't do that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the original plantings in Santa Maria, they're like Pinot, then Rose of Cab, yeah. <laughs> then Rose of Merlot. Right. And they just put everything out there. They didn't Um, know what they didn't know yet. Yeah. And I think it's, what's exciting is if you're, you know, a younger, well, you don't have to be younger. If you're a winemaker that wants to really try fermenting different kinds of things, you know, it's sort of a blessing and a curse that maybe the Santa Barbara is not defined by one particular wine, but the blessing of that is, the curse of that is it's maybe harder to market. The blessing of it is you can attract people who really don't want to be pigeonholed into how they have to make a certain wine. I met a lot of friends, you know, that ended up in Napa and or Sonoma. And there is, you know, where they do what they want is a little small, small side project. But they don't have as much freedom to really explore even their individual sites because they, you know, it's like this is what Napa Cab style is and this is kind of what you have to produce. Mm-hmm. I would, that's like restricting to me. There's like a thousand flavors of Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like a, there's so many opportunities down here to mm-hmm. really pursue something different. And so I think for me, when I think of Santa Barbara County, I think it, it's a place for real wine lovers. You know, that it's, like I said earlier, we're not growing these things as a marketing ploy. It's like the, the climate allows for this sort of diverse set of varietal expressions that are legitimate. Mm-hmm. And you can spend a day tasting the world of wine in one small area, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, not that far from the beach. Big plus. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, let's try this Cabernet that you've produced 
Okay, so um, I'm really excited to try your Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, I've tried them many years in a row. And mm -hmm. what vintage did you bring today? I brought the 2015. Oh, I think I've had that. Which uh, but is, it would have been really young when I tried it. Yeah, uh, it's been showing really well lately. This is the one that's currently on in the market. And I brought it though because it's the most difficult vintage. Right, I remember it was so vintage. low yielding. Yeah. I mean, we were 50% on our vineyard here. Um, I think we got two tons to the acre. Yeah, I think we got even even less than that, and not because we did any thinning. I mean, really, there was the the fruit set was so poor that I remember being on the sorting table, and one of our interns was asking me like, "Should I sort this out?" This is before it hit the distemmer, and she picked up a cluster that was a you know regular sized cluster, and it literally only had about ten or fifteen berries on it. So wow. it looked like a jack, you know, that coming yep. out of one of the right. broken bits of stems coming out of the distemmer. Right. I was like, no, you can let that go through. Like, <laughs> you, we need it. We need those. We need every berries. drop. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. pretty amazing. But also, the it was atypical. I've learned, at least in the six minutes I've been here, for how many heat spells we had, at least in Happy Canyon, um, that year. And I'm I'm thankful that that's not typical. Like this year, 2019, has been so nice and even and moderate. But during the ripening period, I think I counted seven heat, major heat spells in 15. And, and every, so we had really low yields on CAB. After the fourth heat spell, we literally had vines shut down. I mean, they behaved as if physiologically they were going to So you to had dormancy. to pick, you were forced to well, pick earlier. It was like 21 and a half bricks. I mean, oh, it was like 11% wow. alcohol. So what do you do? Still green yeah. and yet dimpling. So we just, we just waited it out. We still brought things in pretty low potential alcohol. I would say of that stuff that came in after that heat spell, which was maybe a third of our total production, we only used half of that. So wow. we had to select out you know, half of that. And so we had low yields already and then we making selections. So I bring the wine because we're actually really proud of this wine, but it's an example of, you, we all talk about you need great sites and you do, but sometimes you have these outlier vintages where there's just a lot of work Mm -hmm. that is put in in the cellar to really do everything you can to still deliver the consistent and good quality you, you want to become known for. And we turned over every stone and like, how can we possibly like make and craft this blend to really be something special? And mm -hmm. one of the things we were worried about in the middle of harvest was needing um, a little more, not body, but like tannin and structure on the finish in particular. And so like this was a vintage where we had much longer macerations, skin contact time to pull mm -hmm. out a little bit more tannin. At one point we were doing trials where we were dropping out new barrels to add more new oak, which I kind of have an aversion to, but it added more mid-palate body. And so we were experimenting with how, like what percentage of new oak can we go to before you start smelling and noticing mm -hmm. the oak too much? Where it overtakes the wine. Yeah. yeah. And so this all took like months to do. And mm. it's it, amazing. It smells so good. It, I would compare this to any mm. Cabernet in Napa blind, and I'm sure it would perform well. There's no yeah, doubt in my thank mind. You. And people don't realize that Santa Barbara County can produce Cabernet Sauvignons because they're so hard to find. There's mm -hmm. so few producers of it. Really I would say you are the hallmark, in my opinion, of the Cabernet kingdom here that we have this little fiefdom of calves. Yeah, I like that, it's a fiefdom. <laughs> we do have a lot of the acreage. And we also, again, this one's distributed nationally, so we probably have the largest distribution footprint for sure of the area. I, you know, this vineyard is why I moved to Santa Barbara, though. You know, there's that that freedom I talked about before when, when talking about the Shard that you, you have, which was definitely very attractive. But I had not spent that much time crafting Cabernet and had quite frankly gotten bored with it. A lot of my friends in the North Coast would, you know, that's what you drink when you're at parties because that's what people have access to. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say the wines aren't great, but they just, they're a little homogenous and richer and lack some energy in my opinion. And, and so the opportunity to come down here and be a part of a region that is still trying to figure out what exactly the, the stamp is in terms of style. and But knowing that the quality had such high potential because if you look at what makes great Bordeaux vintages great or even great Napa vintages and you distilled it down to two things, which one guy has done. Can I get into like a really esoteric detail? Please do. Detail? So a long time ago, I read this book that this guy sent me because I'd done this. I used to have a blog and I wrote this blog post about data. And this guy said, and it was about baseball, like when sabermetricians were starting to become a thing. 
So this is, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. I mean, sabermetricians were already a thing by then, but it was like becoming more part of the parlance of baseball. So this guy sent me this note. He said, hey, you love wine and basically you need to read this book called Super Crunchers. So I learned about, in the introduction, about this guy named Orly Ashenfelter, who uh, developed a mathematical model to predict Bordeaux auction prices. Hmm. And he did it based on, like, I think it had to be at least 15-year-old uh, wine traded on the secondary market as an indication as to whether or not people really, of, of the quality. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of laughed at, like critics like Parker, like, nah, I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he doesn't yeah. even taste the wines. But he only used two variables. And if, you're, if your model works, then it suggests that whatever variables you're using in the model are at least describing, let's say, 75% of the outcome, some majority of the outcome, right? And the only two variables he used were temperature and rainfall in the summer. Really? And hmm. people still use this guy's model, like Sotheby's still use this guy's model to forecast Bordeaux auction prices That's based on vintage information. And it's been shown to, for the most part, be accurate. I've never heard of this. And, and so if that's true, then that suggests that, you know, warm vintages with little rainfall Tend create to be great, great cabinets, okay. right? That huh. people will demand yeah. 15 years down the road when they're buying aged versions of it. Fascinating. Well, when you say you need limited rainfall and warm temperatures, you are describing Happy Canyon every right. single year. Right. You're describing eastern Santa Barbara County every single year. It's arid, dry, And it, it jives with my degree in viticulture enology where I study Great Barrier Physiology and there's all this data starting in the late 80s especially, but really starting in the 2000s of demonstrating the benefit of early season water stress and improving your color, the sort of depth and genesis quad of the wine, your phenolic maturity, all these things we value as winemakers. Well, you need to get early season water stress to do that. Well, we just had a big winter rain, right? It was yeah, we barely 50 need to percent more than, than normal. It's been right? a wonderful year for, for. And yet, from the vines' point of view, it's still dry. Mm -hmm. Like we're we're doing, we're barely starting variation on just a handful of Cabernet blocks right now, and our our vines are stressed. Mm -hmm. Napa Sonoma, sixty inches of rain. I'm not sure exactly what they mm -hmm. got. I think they got forty inches, like in February. Yeah. They have been working to try to get moisture out of their soil all summer. Wow! So they have the reverse problem, so, right? So it's mm -hmm. it's it's not that those wines up there won't be good this year. I think they will be, but they're employing techniques to try to really dehydrate their wow. soil, to decrease the vigor of the vine. I did not know that. Whereas here, we we can avoid sort of greener characters and all these things because we were always drier. Mm -hmm. And so to me, what that's allowed us to do with our Cabernet is we're harvesting earlier. We're not doing this model of like pick really ripe, add water, and you know, to get it back to where you need it to be. It's like, no, what I saw when I toured this vineyard and was, it got introduced to the Deerberg family was an opportunity to kind of craft Cabernet in a, in a different way making different choices, but actually still produce something that is classic cab, has a lot of depth, has a lot of complexity, and mm -hmm. can you know punch maybe above its weight. Right, uh, which I would say it does. I never thought I'd have so much fun making Cabernet because I'd gotten so bored with drinking it. Mm -hmm. I th although some of the best wines I've ever had have been aged Bordeaux. I never thought I'd have so much fun making Cab. It's way more diverse of a variety than I realized. Star Lane's got 800 foot of elevation change. We've got three major soil types, probably really five different soil types, we have different clones. I mean, we make probably 30 to 40 different cabs every year, you know, to only bottle two. And it's really, it's a fun, really fun wine to make. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara brilliant. Visit santabarbaraca.com to plan your stay. I think a lot of people look at my background and I think people perceive me as having this very technical approach to winemaking. And we were talking about the kind of mysteries and the depth that wine offers. And I really believe that the winemakers that have the best opportunity every year, and as you know, it's only an opportunity. But I think if you're able to sort of embrace what's mysterious about wine, and not have to have all the answers and have to have all the technical stuff to make your decisions. But if you do also know those things, the combination of that should give you the best opportunity each year. Because you, you have to 
be willing to operate within this space of mystery where you you don't totally know what the outcome is going to be, mm -hmm. and you're making a gut call or an act of faith or something, right? Right. right. Like, well, like with this 2015 cab. I mean, that's kind of what this wine was about was doing the best we could with the information we had in a very challenging vintage and just, you know, working toward a great outcome. And as I said, like, we're pretty happy with it. Yeah, it's absolutely um, beautiful. It's elegant. It's not over, overpowering. You know, so many people make Cabernet too big, too high in alcohol, too rich, too extracted. Mm -hmm. This is right in the middle for me between right. that big, heavy Cabernet and maybe a Bordelais. Yeah, I appreciate that because it's, I think, in the, I think it's where our sites here in Santa Barbara County can give us and that certainly it's, it's a California wine, right? There's a sweetness and a richness and a bigness that's maybe not quite Bordelais, but there's still some of those fresh herbs and structure and, and a little bit lighter quality that it's also not, you know, something richer like from the North Coast. And if you're going to express individual sites, well, then it kind of should be like that. It reminds me of Sauvignon Blanc from our area where when you taste it, you think, this is Sauvignon Blanc. Like, it's distinctly Sauvignon Blanc, but it's not Friulan, it's not Sancerre, it's not Napa, it's not Marlboro from New Zealand, and yet it is correct for the variety. That is so cool. Like, that is a plant still being what it is, Sauvignon Blanc, and yet taking in the environmental cues from its different area and adding things that you're not used to seeing being mm -hmm. combined together to make Sauvignon Blanc. Like, yeah. that is... Like, I'm a plant guy. Like, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, so you've kind of parlayed your, your botany background into enology, and you're kind of uh, fusing like the two. too. Yeah, well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a little bit above my pay grade, that's for sure. <laughs> you came to the wine industry as a winemaker, and you stepped into one of the most beautiful vineyards and winery. The winery is absolutely stunning at yeah. Star Lane. I mean, it's right. magnificent, actually. Yeah. There must be a lot of collaboration between ownership and, and the winemaking department and viticulture, which I know you oversee as well. What is that relationship like? It's great. It's something that is, you always have to continue to revisit, you know, and I think that preventing a house palette and preventing only seeing things from internal is important. And I think the family provides a great ballast to making sure that we're not doing that in the cellar. And when I first came on board, we had a lot of conversations and opened up a lot of bottles of wine, mostly to get on the same page about the direction that I thought I was hearing they wanted to go and what I therefore would recommend to them about how we should approach producing the wines or farming the grapes. And so when, when I would say things like, hey, I think with the Cabernet, you can lean on the nature of this environment, lower water, you know, warmer temps, as we discussed. And, and as a result, you can pick earlier. And yet this was sort of at the, you know, back in 2013, where In Pursuit of Balance still existed mm -hmm. and was kind of this thing. And so I think what they were maybe hearing, and this is just to give you an example, that what they were maybe hearing is, oh, wait, he wants to swing the pendulum the other way, which I think would be a bad thing to do. Just, you don't want to be reactionary, right? Sure. You want to figure out what's the right approach. And so then we were able to open up bottles of wine and they said, you know, well, give us an example of what you mean of somebody oh, who's been picking earlier. Yeah. Uh, and, and then when they would taste that, oh, okay, you're not talking mm. about going way over here and just being odd for the sake of being odd. It's, it's really trying to dial it in. And so then we, we kind of have that back and forth. And we've continued to have that. Of uh, We always make things at the extreme ends every year because we have the bandwidth to do that and the vineyard to do that. And so we can revisit those every year and say... You know, how does this fall for what your palate wants? Because one of our long-term goals also has to be that the family, you know, really believes in and enjoys the wine. You know, this is ultimately, it's their project. And their great-grandkids um, have to enjoy the wine. Exactly. <laughs> and so the, what I've advocated to them, which we've, we've agreed, you know, we've agreed is, is probably the right approach, is that the thing that will be their in perpetuity is the land. And so if we can figure out how to craft wine that is truly tied to the place, that you really get maybe key specific flavors in addition to just gen general deliciousness that are in those key specific flavors are tied to the place, that that is something that if it's attractive could be sustained generation to generation. And so that's what we're sort of leaning on is trying to answer the question of what does it really mean to make a wine of place or mm -hmm. terroir as right. the uh, 
French would say. Have you figured it out yet? No, because I think it takes a long time to figure it out, especially when you know we have in our in our vineyard, right? We're still on the first generation of vines. We're only twenty. This will be the twenty-first year of the original plantings. And so, if I think about it like a scientist, I think we well, need several replications to determine a trend and find a pattern. And in wine, that's one a year. You get one replication a right. year. But I do think that. I've learned a lot about answering the question, what does it mean to make a wine at terroir? And I think it is partly what it means is that it's a pursuit. But I think a lot of times we default as winemakers to thinking because we produced it and because we say our goal is to make wine at terroir, then we achieved it. We actually do not question our own thinking enough. Hmm. You know, I think we need to, so the way to back up, like the way we think about what it means to make a wine terroir is to separate out flavors that we can determine came from a decision that was made in the cellar versus flavors that we can try to determine legitimately came from the property. Mm -hmm. And so an obvious example would be say new oak, right? If we're not growing oak trees on our property. Well, actually we are growing oak trees. We're not you know, growing oak trees yeah. for you're the end purpose French of creating oak. barrels. <laughs> and so we, we want to be very cognizant of how much new oak is obviously perceptible to the taster, even the aficionado who's probably mm -hmm. more likely to notice it. Because if you taste it, you're tasting a seller choice. You're, right. That decreases the experience that we can verify is coming from the fruit. Now, sometimes new oak does complement it and you don't notice it. It makes the wine more delicious, mm -hmm. which you also need to make a wine in terroir. Because if your wine's not delicious, nobody cares where it came from. Right. You know, if it, it has to be delicious for them to say, where did that come from? Where are these guys? Exactly. You know, and then they start caring about the, the area and the property and the site. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we want that as well. So it sounds like there's alignment between you and ownership and, you know, your, your viticulture and enology teams. Everyone's kind of on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, takes effort. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, everyone has a different opinion. It's subjective, yeah. right? Wine is a subjective yeah. medium, just like art. And so... Everyone's entitled to their own opinions and everyone, hopefully everyone will contribute their right. personal philosophies. But at the end of the day, you're the man and you know, you need to make the final call. Right. Um, so that's, that's a, a lot of responsibility. When a lot of, a lot of the work and the communication is also talking about what the consequences of the decision might be. Right. So, so if you pursue this style that might be a little bit leaner, might show more fresher, you know, I did say you might get worse scores from critics. You might shrink the number of people, at least for now, who will immediately enjoy that wine. Now, that's turned out not to be true. Actually, the inverse mm. has been true. Mm. But, but it, was a, a, it was a real risk. That's part of the dance. You know, it's like, oh, okay, we are dealing with just sort of flavors. And, you know, you can kind of, in California anyway, you, we have people that pick four weeks after we pick. The same variety. Wow. I mean, that rarely happens in Europe. Right. Right, because you're kind of up against the end of the season there. And here, you, you know, so the style can be so different from the same exact place. That's why it's so important to ask yourself, what does it actually mean to make a wine of place? So instead of making the blockbuster, right, the most crowd-pleasing wine, right. you decided, no, we're going to make the independent film, right? We're right. going to make something that's true to our terroir, true to my style as a winemaker. Right appeals to the family and appeals to a more of a target market per se. Right. But I would say it, that, that my real belief was that we could make the independent film that would get picked up and actually end up appealing to the broader audience. Tarantino style. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But that it wasn't going to be like immediately recognizable as that. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't. So we still do battle with even in our local market in, in Los Angeles, you know, where everybody wants to be local. They want to source their food local. They want to source all these things local. And you go to a steakhouse and it's 50 Napa Cabernets on the list. Right. And no Santa Barbara County cabs. It's like, come on, guys. Yeah. yeah. We're delivering what I think your customers want. Like they won't be disappointed when they have this wine, even if they're used to drinking Napa wines. But they're used to customers asking for Napa. Oh, yeah. So it's I a don't harder sell, them. right? I don't blame them, yeah. So that's on us to to help the consumer choose Santa Barbara Cabernet, right? right. Yeah. Which totally. we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying, yeah. So it's great that you brought this 2015 Cabernet. Um, I'm really curious. I, I really look up to you, actually, for your advice um, with my own vineyard, actually, and feedback, because I'm a Bordeaux producer as well. Mm -hmm. 
What does 2019 look like for you as a vintage? And if you don't mind, kind of start from beginning to, you know, how that might play into your wines this year. Are you already thinking about your wines right. from the 2019 vintage? Well, so far, I think it's relatable to last year, even though it's a little bit later. So you have more time here than I do. But We're a little so, cooler. Yeah, my... Well, not just that, but I need more vintages under your belt. Mm. You know, this will be my seventh vintage, and I happen to come right at the beginning or the second year of the drought. So all I've ever experienced really is dry years, dry yeah. years that have warmer winters that start earlier, and so everything's been shifted earlier. And the first kind of break in that was last year, where we were more on historical average. And I'm thrilled with last year's wines. I think they have incredible depth they're a little more structured and masculine even though they're not as rich and sweet mm -hmm. um but but we kind of like that the fruit flavors are darker with more spice more fresh herb and so i think that 2019 is on that path but it's even a little bit later and that is going to prove to be kind of interesting i think the time that the next let's see we're maybe two or three weeks away from 50% for Asians. So we're really talking of what is the weather going to be like in September and October and you know, what kind of heat spells are we going to get? You know, can we avoid them so that we get the length of time we need to maybe really ripen this sort of cooler season cab crop? But, but I, uh, when I think about what the wine might be like and how that might affect the way we behave in the cellar, I just think like we have a meeting this afternoon with our team and I'm going to kind of pitch them, okay, here are a few ideas we're going to pursue this year in the cellar. And, and one of them is embrace herbal, fresh herb characters. I don't, I just do not believe that in this area we have to worry about bell pepper, like the methoxypyrazine, you know, fermented bell pepper quality. I think we just embrace the kind of sage and thyme mm, and, yeah. and herbs that we get that I think right. are much more positive. Mm -hmm. And this year we, we just might have more of them. I'm hoping that we can actually elevate acidity as a result. So I'm actually excited about it, although it does lean the wine into that that space that is not as obviously enjoyed when it comes to California Cabernet. If we could put Bordeaux on the label, <laughs> they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is a really nice, rich Bordeaux, great yeah. structure. It's not even that herbal. Like That's how they would think about right. it. If you could give them that cue that, oh yeah, this is... This is from Margot, <laughs> yeah. you know, but if it's California, then all of a sudden our standard is, you know, really rich. And so they start to see it differently. But no, I think 2019 is, um, I think in general, if you can be closer to the edge of where you get ripe, you're going to make a better wine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Santa Barbara County offers that to most of the varieties that we, that we grow. If you're in the right spot, it's generally a cooler region, definitely cooler for cab than most other places where cab is planted. And I think you make more interesting wines when you're closer to that edge of it being a little bit harder to get right. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of winemakers actually listening to this show as well. So let's geek out a little bit because okay. you're one of my smartest winemakers in the panel, I would say, in terms of your IQ. I mean, you, you must just, have a massive have a, IQ, right? Have, no, I don't think so. Oh, I, I think just you think do. you need so. to talk to more winemakers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do for sure. So let's geek out a little bit first on pyrazines and explain to us, you know, wh why are you challenged by pyrazines here in Santa Barbara? Well, see, I don't think we are. That's the thing. So, but I think that it's in everybody's mindset that pyrazines are something you're supposed to worry about in Cabernet because it's been shown to be less desirable. And just everybody knows, like, or you know, that methoxypyrazines are the bell pepper quality, which of course we have to remember, it's only one of a thousand flavor compounds in the wine. So it's really only a proxy to green or herbalness, sure. right? And sometimes they can be almost jalapeno. Yeah, which, which is too far in my right. opinion. I mean, a little bit can be okay. Mm -hmm. But we were talking earlier about communicating to the family about the implications of some of the direction that I thought we should go in. And so one of the things, I had a 45 minute PowerPoint presentation and one of the things I presented to them was data about methoxypyrazine in CAD. And uh, it was data from Napa and it was really cool stuff because it was two wet years and a dry year, 2007 being the dry year. And in the dry year, the level of methoxypyrazines just after verasion they were detectable, but they were already what would consider, be considered threshold concentrations in the wine. If you're ripening way out to 16% potential alcohol in a vintage like 2007, you're not doing it to get rid of pyrazines. In fact, it's, it's shown that their minimum level 
is around 40 days after abrasion, 23 and a half or so bricks. After that, you're not seeing much degradation of the pyrazines. Now, other flavors around them might change that say mask it or integrate it. But in our area, I've tested for pyrazines in two different vintages. The first vintage I was here, and then also in the 17 vintage where we, also, we had a wet winter. I want to do it again in 19 because we had a long wet winter. Mm -hmm. By 22 bricks, which was, what is that, 11.5% potential alcohol. Alcohol, yeah. Undetectable. Really? Wow. You can't, you don't even get it in the fruit. It's an advantage that we have. I think that wouldn't be the, the case in Napa or Sonoma. Right. So Happy Canyon really is a special, perfect situation for Cabernet because yeah. it, it is hot enough to, to kind of you know, prevent real bell pepper character that uh, some of the cooler climate cabs have. Yeah, I think especially if you're not over irrigating them. If you over irrigate, you might lose the advantage you have. Mm -hmm. I so, mean, driving in this morning to meet you, I mean, your some of your canopies were nice and small and yeah. devigorated and mm -hmm. I don't know if those were cab. I think they were. Like you're not likely to have to worry about pyrazine. Now that doesn't mean you should go ahead and pick at twelve and a half percent potential alcohol because right. you might be there's there's way many other elements as you know, as you know, to, to going into crafting a wine with depth. But I think it's just one of those things that I just don't think about anymore. The, the idea of greenness is is different. You know, it's, it's not that flavor. Yeah. So speaking of crafting, let's get into the cellar. Yeast, native, you do any native and, and then any, you know, of the typical UC Davis strains or what are you using? So all of the reds are native. I, I like to say feral. Feral? Yeah, <laughs> like a feral. cow. Because it, I think sometimes with natural or native, there's this implication that it's some new strain where it's often, if you were to... DNA fingerprint and it's actually some commercial strain that maybe your winery has never yeah. used. But people forget that a lot of the commercial strains came out of wineries. They sure. just ended up being cultivated commercially. It's some feral cat, you know, that is <laughs> yeah. doing our ferments. Uh, the white wines, we've, we've explored feral yeast ferments and so far to the frustration of the team, every time I've decided to do it, we've gotten stuck ferments. Oh. Which, as you know, stuck Chardonnay, like stuck barrel fermented wine is, is more annoying than rolling hoses. Mm. Uh, and so with the white wines we inoculate, we just use a kind of standard CY 3079. We did start experimenting last year with a, a yeast strain called BRG, known for making more reductive mineral mm. Chardonnays. Because mm. the Deerberg Vineyard Santa Maria Shard that we had earlier tends to make fruit flavors that are a little bit more open, almost sometimes too open. Like in Champagne, they talk about reductive styles and oxidative styles of Champagne. I think of Santa Maria Valley is more in that oxidative leaning area. and. Santa Rita Hills Chardonnay is more reductive leaning. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to actually bring some of that reduction to help. Uh, we thought it would help ageability and kind of make some of that fruit not quite so overt. And I'm really skeptical of yeast strains doing that, mm. but it actually worked. <laughs> we just tasted it last week. So it's been 11 months of aging. And I thought oh, after 11 months, you won't be able to detect <laughs> the difference, but it's pretty obvious. Interesting. So we're going to use it again this year and keep tracking it. Good. And for all the nerds in your audience, I did do DNA fingerprinting to make sure that the yeast we added was the yeast that finished the fermentation. All right. So we submitted the wine at one third through the ferment and at the end of ferment to make sure that the yeast strain we added is the one that actually finished the Of course the you did, Tyler. Of course you did. I know. Okay. So I just wanted to share with the viewers and those listening to the podcast, you know, your tasting room, Deerberg, is beautiful. Maybe you can give them a sense of where that's located, how to find it. Yeah. So because we have three different properties, we sort of divide and conquer how we do our winemaking and, and tasting. So we have a small winery, more so a tasting room at our Santa Rita Hills property uh, known as Drum Canyon Vineyard. So it's uh, seven miles west of Buellton, between Buellton and Lompoc off right 246. Off the, yeah, 101, 246, right, right in the middle, right? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and you can taste the whole portfolio there. So the Star Lane, Cabernet, and Bordeaux varietal wines are, and the Burgundian varietal wines under the Deerberg label are all, yeah. all there. In and a beautiful it's, setting. It's a great setting in the country, near right next to our vineyard, and a great team there. We renovated it a couple years ago, so it's a really... Great. I like going out there for meetings and tasting wine. It's just a very peaceful place. I went out there for an industry party and it was so much fun. You guys brought out a band and a yeah. barbecue and the wines were phenomenal. That was actually the first time I tried 
your Burgundian varieties. I, luckily, we've known each other a little bit, and I've had a chance to try the Star Lane wines at Star Lane Winery, which is stunning. I mean, it's yeah. a castle with, with caves and state-of-the-art equipment and tanks that would make any winemaker drool. It's true. It, is a, it, it was well-designed to be a winemaker's paradise. And we are starting to do a little bit more tastings there. We've done a cave dinner for our wine club members every year there. We did a blending seminar out there last year. And, um, you know, we're, we're thinking about by appointment only tours there, but, but only just starting that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's because it's also the family's residence and property. Sure. So you you want to be respectful to the traffic. Well, they're already sharing the property with you and all the workers. So why, why let the general (laughs) public in? (laughs) Right. But I can understand the, the, the importance of the farm stays, you know, farm stays are so important. If you look at Italy and France, uh, agritourism is a huge part of their economy. They, people want to get back to nature. They want to taste the fruits and taste the vegetables and the olives and the things that we can produce out of the soils here in Santa Barbara. And um, I just love that part because I feel like we're doing a public service essentially to educate people about fine wine and fine food. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the more we can connect people in sort of a tangible way to the land, the better opportunity we probably have in preserving the sort of rural pastoral feel that I think is the goal of most Santa Barbara County residents, right? Is we, we, we want to preserve it. And when I say preserve it, I don't just mean have it be frozen in the way it is, but preserve it as a sort of thriving place where people can, you know, live and earn a living and, and, and yet not have to transform its landscape in order to do that. Right. You know, and I think wine is a great avenue for that in vineyard land as a result. So we are on the same page, my friend. Yeah, cheers. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Tyler. Yeah, great to great to chat. Amazing conversation. Cheers. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara. Co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon, and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Shalafant, and music by Peter Seibert. Special thanks goes out to Tyler Thomas, Deerberg, and Starlane Vineyards. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review.